Reflections on Homer's Iliad by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 If war is, as we suggested earlier, a sacrificial ritual, a device for exporting animosity or a sufficient portion of it so that the tribe can remain integral and peaceful, then the plague is a symbol of and a symptom for the breakdown of the, sim- of the system for exporting the animosity because the plague happens inside the Greek camp and happens parallel to a split within the Greek camp represented by Agamemnon and Achilles. As a sacrificial ritual, war exports the animosity or aggression so that the cultural work at home can go on uncluttered by that kind of tension so that the tribe can attend to its cultural business, so to speak, so that some kind of consensus can be built within the tribe uh, once the aggression and animosity is eliminated. In a late or geriatric stage of cultural development, the only cultural enterprise that can convene a consensus is often war itself. So the device for essentially eliminating the animosity so that the cultural business can go on becomes in the late cultural phase the only cultural business that can summon a consensus. That is to say, the culture in the late stage has already begun to break apart and it's very hard to form a consensus in the late cultural stage. This is the Toynbean notion of the, of the dissipation of the cultural thrust. So that the only thing one can do in this late cultural stage to hold it together is to have a common enemy. It's the only thing that seems to reliably galvanize a consensus. Okay, the fact in this poem that a plague happens inside the Greek camp and that it is symbolically associated with the division that happens in the Greek camp, represented by Achilles and Agamemnon, is a symptom of the fact that the sacrificial device for keeping the the antagonism outside the tribe has broken down. It has seeped back into the tribe. This is the dangerous cultural crisis that the the Iliad is all about. It's a sacrificial crisis because the most uh, reliable sacrificial device, namely war, has failed to keep the antagonism outside the tribe. And it's also a maturation crisis because it provides an, presents an opportunity for the maturation of people in the tribe. Those who can't mature, so think of it as a sacrificial crisis and a maturation crisis. Those who can't mature or who won't, won't need a sacrificial victim. They need to have another sacrifice that might work. Those who do mature develop an independence from the tribal cultus that both they and the rest of the tribe regard as alarming. And I'm thinking here of Achilles. So the maturing ones become the logical candidates in the tribe's search for a new and more efficacious sacrificial victim because they stand out as being odd and as having developed their oddities at exactly the same point that the tribe developed its plague. 
because both are symptoms of the breakdown of the cultural gravitational field. Is this vaguely making sense so far? As the gravitational field weakens, the great-souled ones, the Greek word is megalosychos, the great-souled ones, uh, of whom Achilles is the prominent one in this poem, become alienated from the cent central cultural enterprise. The fact that in this poem the central cultural enterprise is war is an indication that that, that cultural cycle is already in its late stages. But the, the great-souled one has become alienated from his culture's central cultural enterprise. Underlying the plague, as if all this were not confusing enough, underlying the plague is a ritual patricide, Achilles throwing down the staff of Agamemnon right in front of his face, and a ritual castration, Agamemnon taking Achilles's concubine and decommissioning him via the honor system from the battlefield. So underneath this, at the phonic level of, all of this poem, is a patricide and a, a symbolic patricide and a symbolic castration. And we'll come to that later in, with some obvious references to those two things later in the poem. The last part of this poem has so much to do, the, the theme is fighting over the bodies of the slain. Over and over again, that's the theme. It's finally resolved on that theme. At this point in the poem, it's as though there is a fight going on over this great-souled one. The fight is to see whether or not he can be reintegrated into the cultural enterprise. And he wants to be and everybody else wants him to be. So the whole society, including the great-souled one himself, who has much misgivings about his newfound independence, try one device after another for getting him reintegrated into the, uh, with the cultural enterprise. Can they reawaken a tribal gravitational pull that is sufficient to overcome his resistance or his rejection and to bring him back into the cultural thrust? Neither he nor they have an alternative to it. So they must find something, and they do finally find something. You and I can look on it much more ambivalently because we are privy to the whole story, namely the Western individuation history, which is to say that we can see an Achilles at this stage as being in the very embryonic stage of developing personhood in the way in which the West was going to finally develop that. And so we, we have some misgivings about the reincorporation of Achilles into a questionable cultural enterprise, the re-tribalization of Achilles' consciousness, which doesn't, by the way, happen fully and finally. This is really the tragedy of Achilles. He is re-tribalized after a fashion, but the end of the poem leaves it open. And if we take the Iliad and the Odyssey together, you see the story, the beginning chapters in the, in the Western story of the individuation process. We have some mixed feelings about what is now going on, which is that the, that the Argive camp is going to try everything it can pull at all stops to try to get Achilles back into the cultural mainstream so that he can put his energies behind the enterprise.
Unfortunately, it is a late-stage problem. It is not going to be easy to bring about this reconciliation. Most of the attempts made are weak and feeble attempts because they don't take into consideration the depth of the problem. Uh, one way of saying it is that they are sacramentally insufficient to bring about this reconciliation. We have to remember it all begins with the breakdown in the sacrificial ritual, which led to war in the first place. War as a sacrificial ritual breaks down. The plague is a result of that, and so on and so forth. I won't go through it all again. The question is, can they find a constitutive event that will regalvanize the culture, including the megalopsychos, the great souled one, who's the first one to pop out because he's the first one that has the specific gravity to drop out, you know, to distill out under circumstances where the where it's not holding. So can they find a constitutive event that will bring them all together again? Nestor, who always has some um, earnest ideas about these matters, if not the most creative, says, uh, first of all, he says, let's have a meeting. And the meeting gets a little raucous, and he says, well, let's have a steering committee meeting. <laughs> And in the steering committee meeting, he suggests that uh, they send an em emissaries to Achilles. Uh, Agamemnon has allowed us how he made some mistakes, and he's willing to give up uh, some of his uh, treasure troves to get Achilles back. And so he, Nestor says, let's send these, uh, this, uh, these emissaries to Achilles and offer him these gifts that Agamemnon has offered him. And they choose Phoenix, who's an old father figure to Achilles, and we'll speak of him in a few minutes, and Odysseus and Aias, who are, who are great warriors and comrades of Achilles in arms, and they send them to take the petition to uh, Achilles, who's lolling around in his hut, uh, sitting out the war. And here's, what, here's the description of what they find when they first get there. Amid the ships and huts of the Myrmidons, they found him taking joy in a sweet harp of rich and delicate make the crossbar set to hold the strings being silver. He had won it when he destroyed the city of, of Eetion and plucked it, excuse me, and plucking it, he took his joy and sang old songs of heroes. Uh, there's something, there's a little wink here, I think, from uh, uh, from Homer a couple of times in, in, in book nine. Notice that Achilles is doing the bard-like thing. He's uh, singing the old songs, playing a stringed instrument. That's what Homer, that's how Homer would have made his living. Uh, so Achilles was now doing the Homer thing. Uh, even the reference, Lattimore has, has translates it more to the point, the reference to, quote, splendid and carefully wrought, that's the, the lyre or the, or the harp that he's playing, meaning it was made with great intentionality. By whom? By Homer. Little reference here. Uh, watch Achilles. Watch what happens when the warrior sits out the war and begins to play on this harp. What happens is that he develops consciousness. He is sitting out the war and plucking on the stringed instrument. We said last week uh, that this thing about Shakespeare and Dante and others agreeing that consciousness begins with a broken heart. On the same sortie, in which Achilles got Briseis, his concubine, he picked up this harp. And now she's gone and he's got the harp in his arms. 
representing that kind of uh, broken-heartedness and uh, thinking it over and uh, retreat from active life that can cause, in a great-souled one, the beginning of consciousness. And something very strange is happening to Achilles under these circumstances, something that he would rather skip. Uh, and that is that other um, dimensions of his life are surfacing now that he is away from the battlefield. But we have to go on and get the whole picture. Across the room, alone and silent, sat Patroclus waiting until Achilles should be done with song. That line is freighted with all kinds of implication. Uh, again, Lattimore translates a phrase here that's, uh, I think, more helpful. Patroclus is over against him. That's Lattimore's phrase. That is to say, Patroclus is juxtaposed to Achilles. So we can see some special relationship between these two. They're connected in some profound way. Achilles jumps up with the harp or the lyre, the stringed instrument, still in his hand, runs when these when the emissaries come in, runs to see them and says, Peace, my two great friends. There's an interesting question here about the two and the three. Um, it may be a later interpolation, but in any case, it says Phoenix comes in. He's already more or less a member of the household. Odysseus and Aeus come in. Peace, my two great friends. I greet your coming. How I have needed it. He wants to find some way to re-enter the war. The reason he wants to re-enter the war is to regain his honor, so he has to find a way to re-enter the war which, which doesn't jeopardize his honor. They have a meal, and I want to come back to that meal at the end of the session today. But uh, first we have to do this, uh, some other things to, to, to understand, I think, the implication of the meal. The central premise of Job's theological surrounds wa was that uh, if you behave yourself and follow the rules, God will reward you materially. And Job was discovering that that's not so. And as soon as he began to discover that that was not so and actually have the audacity to say it out loud that that was not so, his tribal community closed in on him too to try to re-tribalize him to their dominant theology. Namely, they tried to put the toothpaste back in the tube. They, they come to him and say, okay, now, obviously, you know, your children have been killed and you're sitting there with, with uh, sores all over your body and your cattle and so on are dead. Obviously, you have sinned, you see. And he said, no, you got it wrong. I haven't. And there's three, three uh, in the original story, three of his friends, and they all offer different takes on this thing, trying to get him to buy back into the dominant myth. And so the friends come in each case and try to get them to come back into the cultural womb. Well, that's what's happening here. The first to speak is Odysseus. He essentially says, Agamemnon has, all, has offered you these gifts. They're very nice gifts. Take a look at them. Here they are. Uh, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like the Wheel of Fortune or something. This is, wouldn't you like to have all these? 
um, and Achilles uh, lashes out at this. Uh, it's the gifts. Uh, they represent. They can represent honor or dishonor and overcoming dishonor and so on. But, to kill, but they are presented by Odysseus uh, in their strictly material form. And he lashes out. And in the course of his rejection of the gifts, he says something that is interesting to us in light of his little retreat time playing the stringed instrument and what it might have done to him. He says, My mother, Thetis of the Silvery Feet, tells me of two possible destinies carrying me toward death. Two ways. If, on the one hand, I remain to fight around Troy Town, I lose all hope of home but gain unfading glory. On the other, if I sail back to my own land, my glory fails, but a long life lies ahead of me. That's very interesting because when Thetis outlined this to him before, she didn't mention the second, the second option. But she didn't bother to mention it. Maybe that's the way to put it. Uh, it didn't seem to it didn't seem to be one it's as though this second option has now sort of eased its way up into Achilles's mind as an actual option whereas before before he had this little uh, respite from uh, battle it would never have occurred to him as an option it only occurs now long enough to be rejected but in but in terms of you know watching the development of consciousness it's a very interesting new item in his consciousness. Well, the gift exchange doesn't work because it's sacramentally insufficient. There's not enough gravitational pull to these gifts to bring Achilles and Agamemnon back into the same field. I want to take, to take a look at the gift exchange, the failure of the gift, gift exchange itself as being symbolic of the cultural uh, collapse. The, the, you know, as you know, we get the word crisis from the Greek word crisis. The root of that is krino, from which we get the word uh, crisis and the word crime and the word criteria. And I want to explore the word criteria for a second because uh, what essentially is happening with Odysseus's proposal is that they are they are dickering over terms. You see, trying to come up with what the right value would be that we could place on this dishonor that Achilles is, is suffering from. The, the studies uh, about cultural de demise, which are going on fast and furious right now for obvious reasons, the ones that I've seen indicate that this collapse of cultural criteria is a dominant symptom Namely, that a culture needs, it, to, to the extent that it is an integral culture, it will have something like a spiritual gold standard, uh, some central premise or two, which, which none of the manifold activities of the culture will, will fundamentally violate, some, some uh, evaluating principle that is central to the cultural enterprise. For instance, the one that has at times and ought at other times to have been the central premise in the Western world should be the priority of persons over institutions and abstractions. Achilles' central standard, he himself has called into, 
He has, he has participated in the breakdown of the standard, almost literally the standard, the pun on the word standard, the staff, when he throws the staff down, that is a rejection of the standard. That, that symbolizes some coherence, some hierarchical notion of principles. But in the course of this sitting out beside his ships, the linchpin of the whole thing has begun to come loose. He says, in the midst of his rejection of Odysseus's appeal, he says, a portion's equal whether a man hang ba hangs back or fights his best. The same respect or lack of it is given brave man and coward, one who's active dies like the do-nothing. Now this is as outrageous to his culture as Job's statements are to his. It is a way of saying, you know what? It makes a very nice theory, but if you open your eyes and look at it, it's not what happens. It, Job says it makes a very nice theory that if you behave yourself, you get the goodies, but that's not what happens. Achilles says it makes a very nice theory that if you're brave and fight valiantly, you are honored, but you know it's not what happens. And to say this out loud is a very alarming, tribally very alarming. This is the, the cultural equivalent of Sartre's nausea. As to say, oh, no, there are, if that goes, all of the other pieces of mythology are hanging on that central premise. The honor code. This is the honor code. Shakespeare's Othello at a similar place says, Othello's occupation's gone. Well, Achilles is going to recover his. This is a momentary uh, lapse, but it is very significant. He's begun to question the premises upon which his life has been built. And in terms of the story of the individuation process, you could say that Achilles, in having this little retreat by his ships, has developed subjectivity alarming subjectivity, alarming both to himself and to others, and as a result of that, he has developed an objective appreciation of what's really happening in his culture. That is to say, to the degree that he can, has developed subjectivity, he has developed objectivity. He now can say, well, now that I'm sitting out over here, looking at it from outside, it doesn't always happen that way. And it's often, of course, the cultural isolates who are the first to see the cultural disease. And they're not richly rewarded for bringing it to the attention of those who are still within the cultural womb. Although they're trying to richly reward him because they need his uh, military might to defeat the Trojans. And then he's going to question the cause of the war in an interesting way. And I think, again, it's... it's uh, has quite a parallel in, in our modern psychology. He says, why must Argives fight the Trojans? Now, just that question is outrageous, you see. Well, yours is not the, the reason why. Yours is to do and die, right? To ask why? It's like what happened in Vietnam. People said, hey, uh, wait a second. What are we doing that for? See? Achilles says, "Why? wait a second. Why must Argives fight the Trojans? Why did he, that's Agamemnon, raise an army and lead it here? For Helen, was it not? 
are the Atreidae, that's the Atreidae, that's the sons of Atria, of all mortal men the only ones who love their wives? I think not. Every sane, decent fellow loves his own and cares for her, as in my heart I loved Briseis, though I won her by the spear. Now, this is a very subtle thing that has happened. He's, he begins to question the cause of war. Allow me to interpret it this way. This is not... Achilles' synapses are probably too slow for this to have happened just as he was doing it. But he begins to question... Homer's weren't, though. <laughs> he, begins, he begins to question the cause, the political cause. And midway in the questioning, he realizes how much he needs that cause because if it collapses all the way, he has no legitimate motivating principle. So in the middle of it, he collapses it into a personal grudge using the same exact paradigm. Namely, he says, come to think of it, Agamemnon and I have our own little Trojan War because he took my wife, my concubine. See? Uh, so he, he has to draw up short of making, of really letting the whole thing just leak out onto the ground there. He pulls it back and says, yes. I, so he salvages a grudge. The cause is trashed, but out of the, out of the collapse of the cause, he salvages a grudge, which is very interesting if, you, if you're into psychohistory, to go back and look at what happened to some of the people who, who were determined to be the most passionate about pursuing the war in Vietnam. Many found a way, as the cause collapsed, to convert it into a grudge. They killed my buddy. They have our MIAs. The revisionist films that have been made about it have this element in it of it not being a cause, not being a, a, a national cause. That was just too far gone. But a grudge. Well, just before he speaks these words about how much he cares for uh, Briseis, he says of Agamemnon, he holds my bride dear to my heart. I let him sleep with her and enjoy her. Now, he had sent word to, to Achilles that he has not slept with her so far. So, Achilles, there's no, there's no reason that Achilles could not take her back. Homer makes this point. But Achilles says here, let him sleep with her. That is to say, no matter what he says about, you know, loving Briseis, and he does care for Briseis, he needs a cause or a grudge more than he needs her. And he sacrifices her to the, to the grudge right there. I would rather have Agamemnon deepen the insult and therefore uh, bestow on me more passionate determination than to have her back. And he's got to have something that is powerful enough that will override his antagonism with Agamemnon and direct it fully towards somebody outside the Greek uh, circle. And that, of course, will be found at some cost. When he, the next speech is, is the speech of Phoenix, who's an old father figure for 
uh, Achilles. But I think it's in these lines that Homer unpacks the mythological uh, background to the whole Achilles dilemma. And he does it very interestingly. First of all, we don't hear... Phoenix kind of pops into the poem and performs this... opens up the mythological background of the thing and then disappears again. He begins to speak and he indicates... So I'll try to summarize very quickly. He has come with Achilles. They left for Troy when Achilles was still a boy. And uh, Phoenix has come along with him to teach him what he needs to know, namely about war and about uh, being eloquent in council. And then he says, uh, I, he harkens back to his own uh, life experience. And he, there's a le- brief little biography. He feuds with his father. This is the story of Phoenix's life. He feuds with his father, quote, His anger against me rose over a fair-haired slave girl. So, a a controversy with his father over a fair-haired slave girl. Sound familiar? Mm Mm-hmm. There we go. That's why he's telling it. His mother asked him to sleep with this slave girl because his father was bestowing more affection and attention on the slave girl than on his wife. So his wife asked her son to sleep with the slave girl, and having once slept with this uh, with this young stud, she would be considerably less interested in the old man, which, appar- which apparently turned <laughs> apparently turned out to be the case. Uh, so you have the, you you've got an Oedipal, strong Oedipal dimension to this story, and uh, then the, the father cursed the son. And cursed that his curse would, was that his son would have no sons, or his son would have no children. The curse is the symbolic castration. The son, this is Phoenix, says, "I plan to put a sword to him." Symbolic patricide. But I was stopped. Some god unstrung my rage. Remember Athena grabbed Achilles just as he was about to kill Agamemnon. So ritual castration, ritual patricide, both sublimated but both there in the story. This is Homer providing a mythological backdrop. And then Phoenix says, but from that time on I felt no tie with home, no love for lingering under the roof tree of a raging father. Perfect poetic description of Achilles. He no longer feels bound to the to the Argive cause, and he no longer feels uh, he no longer wants to be included under the council tent of Agamemnon. That alienation, that cultural alienation. Phoenix is describing it in terms of a household alienation, but it's the same pattern. And then Phoenix too had his embassy of people coming to him, a delegation of people trying to get him to fit back into the mold. He says, Our household and neighbors, it is true, urged me to stay. They made a handsome feast, and so on and so forth. Nine times they spent the night and slept beside me. Here comes that nine and ten thing. When on the tenth night, starless and black, I cracked the tight bolts on my chamber door and left. And Achilles has just said, I'm going home. So Phoenix has a story that parallels Achilles's. 
And then Phoenix says, but then I came to Phythia's fertile plain. That's where Achilles is from. Peleus is king. That's Achilles' father. Peleus the king gave me welcome, treated me with love as a father would an only son, his heir to rich possessions. And he made Phoenix rich and he turned Achilles over to Phoenix to raise. So Phoenix really is the father figure. Achilles has a father something or other psychologically. We've got to look at this thing. We know that he was raised not so much by Peleus, though he has great affection for Peleus, but by Phoenix. And we know he has problems with father figures, both problems in terms of the kinds he's having with Agamemnon and more sympathetic ones like he's having with his own father and with Phoenix. Phoenix says, It was I who formed your manhood. And this looks like this little this little autobiography. It looks like it's going to go someplace. It looks like it has tremendous potential for cracking open the problem. Phoenix says, "You were the man-child that I made my own." It's almost as though he's suggesting a transference. He's suggesting, "Let's take this whole father thing that's causing such a rift, and let's bring it back into the consultation room between just you and I, and let's work it out there so it won't destroy the society. Let's bring it. Let's work on it." It looks like there's something he said. You're the man-child that I made my own to save me someday, so I thought from misery. Quell your anger, Achilles. All of a sudden, it clunks into this moral injunction. It looks like it's going to develop into something, but boom. Now, Phoenix is doing one thing with this little speech. Homer is doing something else altogether. Phoenix is warming Achilles' heart so that he can drive the moral home. He's telling him about reminiscing nostalgically about his own life and how close he is to Achilles. You know, he says, I used to burp you and get it all over my shoulder, you know. And then he just drives home the moral. Quit being angry. It clunks in like Homer's doing something else. For one thing, he's showing that there's a pattern. He's showing the psychological and mythological pattern of patricide and castration and holding that grudge and being alienated. That's what Homer's doing with it. And the other thing he's doing comes at the end of this little episode that Phoenix is talking about. Phoenix says, Even the gods relent. Burnt offerings, prayer, libation, and smoke of sacrifice. With all of these, men can placate the gods when someone oversteps and errs. So, that is to say, even though Phoenix ends with a moral injunction, that's all he can think of at the end, Homer ends with an emphasis on, on the fact that there is a sacrifice required to overcome this dilemma. It is a sacrificial crisis, and the proper sacrifice has not been found. In that little list of things, he says the gods themselves relent, and here's when they relent. Burnt offerings, courteous prayer, libation, smoke of sacrifice. There's no mention there of moral injunctions. And that's what Phoenix has just tried to to do it with. Moral injunctions are not going to work. It's too far gone for that. What I really want to focus on, however, is the second story. He says, Here is an instance I myself remember, not from our own time, but in ancient days. He said, This is not a new thing. And what it is, is a paradigma. That's the Greek word. It is a paradigma. We get the word paradigm. 
That is to say, it's a, it's a scale model of the dilemma you face. So we have to go to the, to the cultural repertoire and pull out the scale model and put it here. And this is what, this is the situation that you face. And so what he's going to do is, again, what Homer's been doing. He's going to tell an epic within an epic. He's going to present the story, uh, which is the parallel to the Iliad. And it's perfectly parallel. It begins in Media Res, in the middle of the thing. The Corythes were fighting a warlike race, Aetolians, around the walls of Caledon, with slaughter on both sides, Aetolians defending their beloved Caledon, while the Corythes longed to sack the town. Perfect paradigm. And then we go back to how it started. Artemis is the one who started it. She brought a scourge of war because she was angered. Why? There was no harvest offering. Sacrificial crisis. The sacrifices were not efficacious. They were not working. She sent the boar, a boar, a plague. Remember, Apollo sent the plague. And the boar began to turn up the plowed fields, that is to say, civilized, peaceful life. The boar began to just turn it up at home. See, this is a parallel to what's happening in the Iliad. Lattimore says, He ripped up whole trees from the ground and scattered them, roots and all. That is to say, the Greek says, uh, tore the trees from their roots, which is exactly what Achilles did with the staff, which is the symbol of all this. Achilles had said in Book 1, he holds the staff up and says, Look, leaf or shoot that cannot sprout again once lopped away from the branch it left behind in the timbered hills. As to say, and he throws it down. It's cut off from its roots. And then he says, This great boar, Meliagros killed. Meliagros is the hero of this piece. Around the dead beast, Artemis set on a clash with battle cries between Corites and proud Aetolians over the boar's head and shaggy hide. That is to say, the fight, the battle begins then in earnest over the slain corpse. And wait till we get to the latter part of the Iliad. The great fierce battles are over the corpses of the dead warriors. As long then as Meliagros, backed by the war god, fought, the Corites had the worst of it for all their numbers and could not hold a line outside the walls. But when a day came, excuse me, then a day came when Meliagros was stung by venomous anger that infects the coolest thinker's heart, swollen with rage at his own mother. And here, paradigms do this. They'll shift the sexuality or the some, some polarity, just shift it just to make it curious. This is shifting now as the mother, uh, it's the anger at the mother, the mother's curse. For Achilles, it was the father figure, Agamemnon. For Phoenix, it was the fa his father, the curse of his father. Here, it is the mother who curses. We find out a few lines later, his mother had cursed her son over the anguish of losing a slain brother. Meliagros, because of that curse, sits out the war. He languished in idleness at home beside his lady Cleopatra. So he lays around on, at the outskirts of the war with Cleopatra. And now, and then the embassy comes, the, the delegation, and now the elder men implored Meliagros to leave his room and they offered him rich rewards. Paradigma, exactly what's happening here. 
The chief ritual reward which is offered to Meliagros and also the chief reward, the symbolic central reward that is offered to Achilles is what Fitzgerald translates green countryside and what Lattimore translates richest ground and guess what it is? Temenos. A peaceful place. A peaceful place. A protected place. A, A life of peace. He rejects it. And then the social order breaks down his father comes, Meliagros' father comes, just as Phoenix, who is the father substitute, has come now to Odysseus. And then his mother comes, who is the one who cursed him, and in book 19, the, the parental figure who cursed Achilles, Agamemnon, will come. So they're all finally coming to him, and he is rejecting them. And then it says, and then his friends come. Only the more fiercely he turned away. His oldest friends... His dearest, not even they could move him. Not until his room was shaken by the hail of stones as Corythes began to scale the walls and fire the city. Achilles had said, not until they reach my ships. So now it's right against the walls of Meliagros. And at that point, what happens? Then, at last, his lady in her soft belted gown besought him weeping. His heart was stirred to action. And he went and fought the war and won the war, but it was too little and too late, and the, and the, uh, his people uh, would not give him the rewards after all because he came too late. We'll get into that in a minute. But it was because his lady came weeping to him that stirred him into action again. His lady is Cleopatra. Cleopatra is the reverse of Patroclus. Cleopatra and Patrocletus. Okay, there's the beautiful picture of what's happen, happening, going to happen. But again, Phoenix clunks it down with a moral. He says, If you reject the gifts and then later enter the deadly fight, you will not be accorded the same honor, even though you turn the tide of war. So again, it's back to the gifts. And has no... He said, You won't get your honor, the way you should have your honor. He doesn't understand the deeper sacrificial crisis that you won't get your honor, he says. And then comes the most amazing line in a way in this poem. Achilles says, this is the I.A. Richards translation which drives it home. Achilles says, that is an honor I can live without. I have honor enough from Zeus. Now, this is like, this ought to be accompanied by the music to 2001. (laughs) This is like a great breaking open of the heroic code. The heroic code is, is one in which I always see my life through other people's eyes. My estimation of myself is what other people think of me. They're absolutely identical. I do not see my life other than that. And for one brief moment, there's this great gap opens and it slams shut again. And for that brief moment, Achilles sees his life through Zeus's eyes. I think it's a tremendously dramatic moment. And and one feels a little forlorn to see it disappear so quickly back into the, the heroic code again. But it is exactly at that moment that he is 
there with the psalmist. Remember that psalm we read last week? A man lasts no longer than the grass and so on, which ends with that thing about Yahweh, uh, Yahweh loves those who fear him. Yahweh's love for those who fear him lasts from all eternity and forever. The psalmist has come through that and, rec- and suddenly seen his life through God's eyes. And there for a moment, uh, Achilles sees the same thing. That is to say, he, he touches on a source of authorization independent of the social order. And if he could connect with that, he could be relieved of that constant anxiety over establishing and reestablishing himself uh, in terms of the social order. I mean, it's the key to a re- the relief of his, you know, his condition. But it opens and closes. They go back and say, this man, Odysseus says, this man has no desire to quench his rage. They tried to do it with moral injunction. It all finally came down to moral injunction. And uh, it, that's not going to do it. A sacra- it's, it's, a, it's a sacramental crisis. A lot of people think Book Ten could be left out because uh, it, you could go right on with the story uh, without uh, without it. Uh, but I, there's a number of reasons why I think it's wonderful to have it in there. I won't mention them all because we don't have time. But one of them is that it's a wonderful symptom of the same cultural disorder that we've been looking at, namely that when the when the cultural uh, enterprise becomes less believable, less uh, convincing, an interesting thing happens, and that is that respective tribal groups uh, begin to engage in clandestine operations. That is to say, they launch little covert operations at night on each other, as though they were anticipating the CIA and KGB. These being, in the in the Iliad, a symptom of the lack of cultural conviction. Both the Greeks and the Trojans are depicted in Book 10 as not being able to sleep, being very anxious about the situation, and waking up in the middle of the night and saying, well, let's do something sneaky. And Homer has made some references to his his appreciation of this kind of activity. Odysseus and Diomedes are the ones that are chosen by the Argive Council. To, to do this little covert action. Uh, they are respected heroes, but uh, Odysseus is given a bow, and a bow is a little bit like a Saturday night special in, in Homeric terms. It's not exactly your noble weapon. But we really get a picture of it when you see the Trojan side. The Trojans pick Dolon uh, to do their clandestine activity, and it, it is said of Dolon, puny though he seemed, and only son with five sisters. Now, that is not a biographical, that is a characterological assessment of Dolon. And Dolon says, I will go, but you must swear that I get my reward. Namely, he gets a, the, the uh, bronze chariot of Achilles. He's, he wants to make sure that the prophets are in it before he gets into it. So he's all, all in favor of covert activity as long as there's some prophets involved. And then to... Homer shows what he thinks of this kind of sleazy operation by uh, outfitting Dolon with exactly the proper equipment. He also gets a bow, but he gets, for cloak, the skin of a gray wolf. 
He took the cap of weasel, picked up a javelin, and headed down for the line of ships. The Aristea of Agamemnon takes place. Agamemnon is wounded, so is Diomedes and Odysseus. The Greeks are in a terrible fix. And there's this meeting between, important meeting between Nestor and Patroclus. The story is this. Paris wounds Machaon. Machaon is the is the uh, healer among the Argives, the chief healer. There are two healers, and both of, both are sons of uh, Asclepius, and both are wounded. Achilles looks on, sees what he thinks is the wounding of Machaon. He's not sure, so he says to Patroclus, he says, the, Acha- the Achaeans now will come to beg and pray, I think, around my knees. Underscoring the importance of this. If the chief healer is wounded, that represents a genuine cultural urgency. The person who is capable of healing is now himself wounded. Then we have an exaggerated emergency. And Achilles says, surely they'll come begging at my knees. So he says to Patroclus, go and find out if in fact that was Machaon. Patroclus goes and stands at the tent of Nestor. That's where the wounded man is. And the poem says, at the door, Patroclus, like a god, appeared and stood. Nestor uh, grabs, uh, so to speak, uh, Patroclus and begins to ply him with old war stories about greatness in war and sort of warms him up to that the, the heroic code and the motif of winning glory in war. And then he says to Patroclus, Let Achilles send you into battle. Let the battalion of Myrmidons follow you. Victory light for Danaeans you may be. And let him give you all his beautiful armor to wear in battle. And Patroclus is stunned, doesn't speak, but runs back immediately to Achilles to uh, propose that option. On the way back, he comes to Eurypylus, who is wounded. And I want to... Now we must take a look at what's happening. Remember, the healers are now wounded. Before we go into the Eurypylus scene, I want to go back to Book 8 for a minute. In Book 8, Zeus had said to the other Olympians, Hector shall not give his prowess respite from the war until the marvelous runner, son of Peleus, rouses beside his ship when near at hand around the sterns in a desperate narrow place they fight over Patroclus dead. That way the will of heaven lies. Now that's book eight and one thinks, look, this is only book eight. Why give it away? That's the whole story right there. Why give it away in book eight if you want to build drama? I think the reason is this. Only by knowing what's going to happen can we appreciate the deeper symbolism of the episodes that lead up to it. Back to book 11. Eurypylus asks Patroclus. He says, the healers are wounded. And he asks Patroclus to sift into the wound that anodyne you learn from Achilles, a drug that people say the very best of centaurs, Cryon, taught him. We have surgeons, Podalirius and Machaon, but the one I think is lying wounded in his hut, himself in need of a healer, and the other faces the Trojan charge, still in pain. Both are wounded. So this is a further example of the cultural crisis. 
the healers are gone. And one of the wounded now asks Patroclus to become the healer. And then Patroclus does something which is very symbolic of his own life. Patroclus took his sheath knife and laid open the man's thigh to excise the biting arrow. So he cut, takes the knife and cuts open the flesh and takes the arrow out. With warm water, he washed the black blood flowing from the wound, then rubbed between his hands into a powder over the wound a bitter yarrow root that dulled all pangs of pain. Now the gash dried as the blood and powder clotted. So Patroclus is performing the healing ritual, healing up the gash, the wound. And now think of the wound as the gash that has opened up inside the Argive camp between Achilles and the Myrmidons and the other Argives, okay? That is the wound that is really threatening the cultural enterprise. And something has to be ground up and poured into that wound to heal it, okay? So now back again to the beginning of Book 9. When the embassy of three friends come to appeal to Achilles to join again, we have Achilles and over against him or juxtaposed to him, Patroclus. And after the greeting, there is a ritual meal and much, is go much poetic craftsmanship has gone into the description of that. I'll read these lines. First of all, Achilles says to Patroclus, we need stronger drink. Go get stronger wine. We need stronger drink. This is, a, this is not your ordinary meal. And then it says, Patroclus did as his companion bade him. Meanwhile, the host set down a carving block within the fire's rays. A chine of mutton and a fat chine of goat he placed upon it, as well as savory pork chine. These are all, among other things, sacrificial animals placed on this carving block. Automedon steadied the meat for him, Achilles carved then sliced it well and forked it on the spits. Meanwhile, Patroclus, like a god in firelight, when the leaping flame had ebbed and died away, he raked the coals and in the glow extended spits of meat, lifting these at times from the firestone to season with pure salt. When all was done and the roast meat apportioned into platters, loaves of bread were passed around by Patroclus in fine baskets. Achilles served the meat. He took his place, then opposite Odysseus, back to the other wall, and told, told Patroclus to make offering to the gods. This he did with meat tossed in the fire. Fire is for Homer a symbol of warring rage. And a communal meal is a symbol of a peaceful, regathered communal enterprise. It's the, it's the community around the communion together again. But the symbolic implication is that Patroclus is going to have to be sacrificed uh, to bring that off. Now, I... You understand, this is not so overt 
that it's it's not blatant in the text, but in light of the fact that we've already been told about Patroclus' dying, and over and over again, in one way or another, we're told that it is a sacrificial crisis. The sacrifices are not working. The moral injunctions are not working. And then, in light of all that, one goes back and sees this little scene in which all the elements of the sacrifice are there except the explicit uh, reference to it. But what is highlighted in it is Patroclus' role and finally he's told to make a sacrifice to the gods and he does. Now it's too early to try to make a summary about the Iliad but it's possible to experience that sacrifice, the one that's coming up, we'll, we'll talk about next week, it's possible to experience it and a profound level, one that will be the undoing of a narrow cultural mythic system. Or it's possible to be to experience it at a level which will momentarily regalvanize that cultural enterprise. And the difference between one and the other is whether or not you perceive that death as a death which requires retaliation or whether it has opened up something in you that goes beyond the, that mutual uh, retaliation cycle.